0: thanks Pauline that was brilliant what a really scary reading it is that's the point you know there's swords and there's fire and there's robes drenched in blood and there's a battle etc etc and so that's why the title of this little talk is what's love got to do with it in fact uh, this little passage that Pauline read is part of the battle of Armageddon so we're looking at uh, the book of Revelation, perhaps one of the mis- most, most misunderstood books, and as Dan said last week, misunderstood because it's written in language that would have made sense to the people that first heard it, its first readers, its first hearers, but language that's lost on us. If we were here last week, you'll remember that Dan uh, showed us this fantastic political uh, cartoon, and it was of an American orange looking man with funny haircut, um, holding a roasted eagle up as an offering to a giant bear. Now anyone who reads political history knows that the funny man with, the orange man with a haircut is Donald Trump. The roasted eagle is America offering it up to the bear which is Russia. But of course if you came to look at that political cartoon in 2000 years time, you wouldn't have a clue what it was about. And that's the problem with reading the book of Revelation. Instead of reading it, we need to study it. And if we study it, it makes a huge amount of sense. And far from being a scary book, it's a really hopeful book. But back to the battle of Armageddon. So what I did was I just typed in Armageddon and I went to images and these images came up. There it is, Armageddon, the last battle, the battle from which the words that Pauline uh, read are taken. Here's another. There was a film called Armageddon. Do you remember it with Bruce Willis? You know, the earth was going to be destroyed, but Bruce has ever saved the day. There it is, Armageddon. Notice the similarity. There's fire, it looks bad, it's dark. It's apocalyptic. It's dystopian. There's a video game called Armageddon. There it is. Some of you have probably played it. Or you've got brothers and sisters that have played it. Again, the same deal. Dystopic, fire, brimstone, scariness. That's what the battle of Armageddon is all about. In actual fact... Um, various, several chapters from really chapter 15 on of Revelation are about the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon, by the way, is a place in uh, Israel. You can go there. It's a valley. And uh, that's where uh, uh, the battle of Armageddon figuratively would be fought because in the days in which John lived, it was was in the center of of the news, so what is Armageddon about? Donald Trump tweeted this uh, uh, this morning. Uh, when I, I I kind of I, I took a photograph of this, it was just seven hours old when Donald uh, tweeted this. He tweeted it in the middle of our night last night, and uh, at about seven o'clock this morning, it had already uh, been liked by two hundred fifty-eight thousand people. 77.7,000 7, people uh, wanted to make a comment about it. Why would Kim at John Un insult me by calling me old? I would never call him short and fat. Oh well, I try so hard to be his friend and maybe someday that will happen. These two men, these two men scrapping on Twitter because there's been a response from North Korea already uh, uh, this morning about what they think of Donald Trump. Our world being led by people who are name-calling one another on Twitter is absolutely fantastic, isn't it? (laughs) It's incredible. And then people think we really are headed towards Armageddon. It's going to be awful. We're headed into a nuclear war. In fact... Kim Jong-un said this morning that Donald Trump was an old man who was asking for nuclear war. That was his statement this morning. He's begging for it. He's asking for it. And that's what we will deliver. So the Christian church joins in on this. I've got this shot from American uh, TV. The great battle of Armageddon. Be prepared. And um, Jill Rowe is going to be talking, I think next week, about a time scale for the end of the world, as it's often put forward by Christians. But here's just one I got off the internet this morning. It goes like this. Christ's bodily resurrection, that's at this end, time span not revealed in Scripture, to the rapture, when the church will be removed from earth. We'll escape this last battle of Armageddon because we'll be, I'm sure some of you have heard this, caught up into the air. we we'll get out of it. Then there'll be a seven-year tribulation, which is basically the battle. Things are going to get bad, but we'll be missing because we'll be floating around up there somewhere. And then after, then we arrive back for the, fine, for the final scenes of the battle of Armageddon. And we come back in the second coming with Jesus. And then Jesus defeats his enemies in this terrible battle of Armageddon. And he reigns on earth for a thousand years before judging everybody from his great white throne. Let me tell you, I don't believe a word of that. Not a word of it but it's taught in churches around the world with all sorts of other versions. And what they all have in common is scariness. It's the last days. We're headed to the last judgment. We are in trouble. You could be left behind. Yesterday, I had a day off. And with Cornelia, I went to York and uh, and we had a kind of wander around all of those old shops there, and we went up to York Minster, and I took this photograph. There it is. Um, let me explain what it is. It's outside York Minster. It's an extraordinary uh, statue. It's a statue, as you can probably read from along the bottom, of Constantine, uh, with uh, sat on his throne with sword in his hand. You probably know, don't you, that Constantine was, without doubt, the second most famous, um, effective, inverted commas, um, emperor of Rome ever. Julius Caesar, of course, uh, who got stabbed by Brutus. And uh, Constantine reigned for a huge long period of time and completely changed the world. In fact, we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't have been watching or almost watching uh, that ceremony from the Cenotaph in the way we watched it uh, if it was not for this man. Why is his statue uh, outside York Minster? That's a little bit of York Minster in the background. Because Constantine was in York when his father died elsewhere. And he was proclaimed by his troops in York, pretty well on that spot, they think, as Emperor of the West. What's this got to do with Armageddon? Lots and lots and lots. And what I hope to do in these next few minutes is disabuse you of some of the Christian junk that's talked about around this stuff that scares people out there living daylights and allow you into a world of fact and reason, which is where faith belongs. Faith isn't something we park in another realm to reason and history. Actually, faith makes sense of reason and history. Constantine was in York and uh, there he was proclaimed by his men Emperor of the West. You may know, you may not know, that uh, for many, many years, um, Rome didn't have an emperor. It had four emperors, um, it had two in the west and two in the east. And it had a senior emperor in the west and a senior emperor in the east and a junior emperor as well uh, in the east and the west. And Constantine, uh, Constantine's dad uh, was the junior emperor in the west of the Roman uh, Empire. And here, he was very popular and he was proclaimed emperor in the west by his men without consulting back to Rome or the senior uh, emperor in the west whose name uh, was Maximus. That was to cause a big problem. The fact that Constantine is sat there with a sword outside a church should shock you to the core. The fact that it doesn't shows you how much Constantine has influenced the whole way that we think all of the time. Up until this point, when Constantine was made emperor, no Christian would ever think of lifting a sword. No Christian would ever contemplate joining an army. Why? It's obvious. When Peter took a sword... To the, temple, uh, to the priest's assistant's ear and lopped it off in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was being betrayed. And his disciples thought, the war's on. Jesus is going to take over the empire now. Jesus says, put your sword back. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. But it's not that going to be that way with my followers people will know that you're my followers by the love that you have for one another. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Wash people's feet. Lay down your life. He who comes last shall be first. Serve, love, commit. So, this situation in which we now fuse together the state's, and military leaders, and church leaders, is an extraordinary thing. And if our buffering system hadn't buffered, we would have seen more of it. There were some of my friends. I know all those church leaders. You know, they're my my friends. They're my mates. And there they are, leading out with the royal family onto onto Whitehall, and the military... And the word of Jesus has somehow become one. How did that happen? When did it happen? Well, bef- but, be- I want, before we move on, look what it says on there. It says, Constantine, by this sign, conquer. And we return to that in just a sec. But right beside it, so Constantine's now about there, this is what it says. I took this picture yesterday as well. It says, near this place... Constantine was proclaimed Roman Emperor in 306. His recognition of the civil liberties of his Christian subjects and his conversion to the faith established the religious foundations of Western Christendom. I would like to challenge all of that because I don't think any of it's true. I think it's dogma, not truth. But I'd like to put a different point of view for you to go away and think about. So I'm just going to uh, leave it up there for a while as I talk. Um, Constantine, having been proclaimed junior emperor in the West by his men, realized he was stuck in York. That's a long way from the action. So he gets his army together and he marches down through England and he marches to the Channel and he heads across into France and he marches through France, defeating various armies and battalions of Rome as he goes, and he marches all the way to Rome. And he camps outside Rome. You know the the river Tiber runs through Rome. I'm sure some of you have been there and and seen it. And there's a bridge there in his day uh, called... The Mullivan Bridge. And the battle of the Mullivan Bridge is one of the most famous battles in world history. Because on the other side of uh, the the Tiber in Rome was the senior emperor, uh, Maxentius, his boss. But he was taking on Maxentius. So he stands on one side of the Tiber and the bridge separates him from his enemy but it's supposed to be his boss and he marches across the bridge with his men and a bloody battle follows in which Maxentius is killed and Constantine in 312, 312, uh, six years after he was proclaimed emperor in Rome, becomes the emperor of the whole of the western half of the Roman Empire. He's the, whole of the, he's the emperor of the whole of the Western half, but not the eastern half. That still has to be conquered. As he gets ready to prepare for the battle, there's a story that's told a long time afterwards by a bishop called Eusebius. He's a famous bishop. But he tells this story he tells this story 30 years later on, not the time. And the story is that as Constantine is getting ready to go into battle, he looks up into the midday sun and he sees a cross, a flaming cross in the sky. And he hears the voice of God saying, with this sign conquer. And so what? Constantine does is he goes to all his men and he says I've seen this flaming cross in the sky and I've heard the voice of God by this sign the sign of the cross conquer and so he hurriedly says to all his men paint a cross on the front of your shields we will march into the battle in the name of the God of this cross. And so Constantine marches into battle and he wins the battle and therefore the story goes, if you follow Eusebius, he commits himself to Jesus who is the saviour and has given him the western half of the empire. Now, I ask you, in all your knowledge of being a Christian, how does that fit? How does that work for you? Does that sound a kind of Holy Spirit thing? Does it sound the kind of thing that Jesus might lead you into? Conquering your enemies and crushing them in the name of the cross? In actual fact, the story that's told by Eusebius, like I said, is about 30 years later on. He's already written about this before and he doesn't write about it in the same way. Most scholars believe that this story grew as the years went by. But anyway, the next year after the battle... um, after the battle um, uh, uh, Constantine meets up with the emperor in the west who's called Licinius, in in the east who's called Licinius, he really wants to get hold of all his half of the, um, uh, the estate the Roman Empire as well and they sign what's called the Edict of Milan did some of you do that in history? well here's the thing, they didn't sign it, it wasn't an edict and it wasn't in Milan but apart from that It's a really fascinating piece of history. In actual fact, he did meet Licinius in Milan, but Licinius wrote to him afterwards a letter. And in the letter, Licinius said, Well, I think that what we should do is we should allow these Christians who've been hitherto persecuted to be treated as any other religion in our state. In the, city, in the empire of Rome. All other religions thrive and prosper, but up until now, Christians haven't been able to own property. But why don't we together agree, it's this Licinius talking to Constantine, that Christians can have property just like everyone else. And uh, Constantine writes back and says, yeah, good idea. And that's what got called the Edict of Milan, written by Constantine's enemy actually, who he went on to defeat just four years later, crush to become the sole emperor of the whole of Rome. Christians, however, were given the right to property like all other religions. Constantine became the defender of all faiths, not Christian faith. He was a sun worshipper, the god of the sun, before he saw the burning cross in the sun, He is the one who gave us Sunday as a holiday. That's why we worship on Sun, S-U-N day. But, he said, that Christians could have freedom and property as long as they were faithful to the state of Rome. And that caused a problem. Because hitherto, Christians had believed in non-violence. But now they're being offered property, ownership, and the end of persecution as long as they commit to following the way of Rome. And so that's what they do. And all of a sudden, bishops were turned from being persecuted people into people that wore big gold rings and lived in huge houses because they could have property. So read those words again. Near this place, Augustine was proclaimed Roman Emperor in 306. His recognition of the civil liberties of his Christian subjects and his conversion to the faith established the religious foundations of Western Christendom. Can you see already from what I've told you, it's kind of true and kind of not true? What was done was a deal. The church could have property. The church could stop being persecuted. The church could have ownership. Bishops could become, therefore, people that were recognised in society rather than persecuted in society. But the price was that you join the West, you join the Roman Empire and its values, and you don't oppose it. And that's where the the tradition of following Christ into battle and war comes from. So what do we make of those uh, words that Pauline read? Pauline word, uh, read, um, uh, I'd just like to pick up on just three little images that Pauline talked about. Dan talked last week about how the imagery made sense to people to start with, if not to us. Pauline talked, well, Pauline read uh, 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 read about Jesus' robes being stained with blood. You should read uh, that uh, chapter again at Revelation 19. But if you read carefully, Jesus' robes aren't stained with the blood of his enemies. He's not trampling down his enemies. They're stained with his blood because he's given his life, because he doesn't take up arms, because he doesn't fight. He has had been robbed of life, he's had his life taken from him. Not because he doesn't have the power to put down his enemies, but because he's chosen a different way. Jesus teaches and lives out nonviolence. Lay down your life, go the extra mile, he says. And as he hangs dying on a cross, that is the greatest demonstration of what it is to go the extra mile and to lay down your life. When he's threatened by others, he doesn't send back bullying tweets. When he's threatened by others, he serves. That's what he does. Um, In the reading that Pauline read, it talked about the sharp swords that Christ was wielding. But if you read the sentence again, it says the sword comes from his mouth and that his name is faithful and true. The sword are the words of his mouth, which are words of love. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not return evil for evil. Lay down your life. Live with an open hand, not a clenched fist. This is the sword that comes from Jesus' lips. It's the sword of faithfulness and truth that gets you into a whole lot of trouble but it's the way to live. One final um, I- image that Pauline talked about, there are others in there, but it talks towards the end of what Pauline said about, um, uh, uh, it uses these words, treading on the, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the winepress has blood flowing from it. But if you read the passage in context... It's God's anger because people have been persecuted and put down. We watch television pictures of people's lives being taken from them because of war. But still, we celebrate the lives of those who give themselves in war, in military action. But we do not pause so often to think of the endless millions of people who have had their lives snatched from them. Think of the people of Syria, the people of Syria, who are not playing some power game. They're trying to get on with life and their families and business. And their lives are taken from them, their hospitals are bombed, all hope is removed from them. Their cities are turned into piles of rubble by power people playing a bullying game with one another. God is just. And his anger in this passage is the anger as he looks at the blood of those who've been slaughtered by those who claim to be powerful. Our task, therefore, is to live a different way. Um, On December the 3rd, um, which is a few Sundays time, there's a guy coming to speak here. Um, I hope you'll be here. His name is uh, uh, Sami Awad. And Sami is a Bethlehem-born Palestinian. And uh, he grew up, um, his father was involved in the um, armed fight against Israel. And Sammy, at the age of 16, was introduced to Nelson Mandela, not personally, but his life. And then he began reading about Mahatma Gandhi, and he realized there was a different way. And from the age of 16, I write about him on the front of the news sheet this week, he gave his life to finding a different way. He's a fantastic peace campaigner who works in Pal- uh, with Palestinians and Israelis now and has done this for years. And uh, he's going to be in this country. And I thought at Advent, when we sing about, little, O oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. When you sing those words, do you not feel a deep sense of pain? Because Bethlehem's actually divided by a giant wall. Families are divided from one another. They can't mix. They can't meet with one another. Um, Joseph and Mary couldn't have possibly made the trip that they made 2,000 years ago in today's world unless they took a very, very big ladder with them and a suit of armor. Once again, a little town is divided by other people's greed and the power game. Sammy's going to be here to talk to us. In fact, we're going to have a special lunch. You can sign up to help us get the lunch ready. Roe would love that. And we're going to be able to ask Sammy questions about how we make peace in our divided country because our country is more and more divided. How do we actively go about being peacemakers instead of just singing about it and hoping for the best? And one of Sammy's questions is this. Can we make decisions that are motivated by the future we seek, not the past we've experienced. Today, across our country, endless people are remembering those fallen in war. We ourselves kept that two-minute silence. How best do you remember those who have fallen? How best do we remember their sacrifice? In those 2 minutes silence... I hope that you had the chance to stop and to reflect. But I figure that if we really listen to the voices of those who've given their lives, what we'll hear back is the whisper, don't do it again. Choose another way. Choose to respect life. Choose the way of peace. Become a peacemaker. I showed you Donald Trump's tweet, and it's easy for us to sit here and go, if only we didn't have a leader of the Western world who tweets like that. But then we send a tweet of our own. We use Facebook in a way that's less than gracious. We choose our own priorities over someone else's. So here's Sammy's question, personalised. How can I make a decision that is motivated by the future that I seek, not the past that I've experienced? The Battle of Armageddon is a victory of love over terror, a victory of graciousness over anger, not the way it's depicted in the films. How can I make a decision this week that is motivated by the future that I seek for my family, for my community, for this church, in my case, for Oasis? How can I make a decision this afternoon that's motivated by the future that I seek, not the past that I've experienced and the ways that are ingrained into me in terms of response? That's a big question, isn't it? I'd like us to take just two minutes' silence. And I'd like you, if you want again, to reflect on all those lives who've been lost in war and battle, those in military service who've given their lives, those who've had their lives taken from them. Every innocent civilian who's had their life disrupted, torn apart, lost because of war. Those who grieve today because their family members are gone or disfigured and disabled. And as we listen in the silence, ask this question, how do we live in a way that respects the past? So to build a different future the future Christ calls us to. Let's keep silence. Words that became famous from a First World War poet that you'll know well. When you go home, tell them of us and say, for their tomorrow we gave our today. How do we give our tomorrow to build, how do we give our today to build a tomorrow for our children and grandchildren, for every child born into our world that they'll be able to celebrate? How do you take your skills, your talents, your time, your resources, your career, and invest those for others for the peace that Jesus brings none of us knows our future we may have weeks or months or years or decades but in the silence answer the question that the spirit of God brings to each one of us how do you choose to live your life